Welcome, Capital Racers. We spent time today with Clive Davis exploring the mindset of a scaling syndicator and talked about partnership creation, mentorship programs, market selection, and raising capital. Are you ready to raise if you'd like to explore passive or GP partnerships and BTR? Talk shop on raising equity, explore our capital mentorship program, or guys, if you want to meet me at the Capital Raising Titans event with the Family Office Club, use the link in the show notes. With that, it's Capital Razor Show episode 274, and it starts now. Rock and roll. I got Clive Davis on the Capital Razor Show. Welcome, my friend. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, Ruben. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, man. Very cool to have you. Capital Razor Show Season 3 brought to you by our friends at PitchDex.com. Really fun working with Richard Wilson. So let's chat it up, man. How did you get into this syndication game and capital raising? Tell us a little bit about your background and your company. Yeah, so the background is I had a 20-year corporate career. I'm a recovering lawyer. I started out as a corporate transactional lawyer with a Wall Street firm in New York City. Did that for several years out out of law school. And then I moved to being in-house counsel, first for Pfizer. They relocated me to Atlanta, us to Atlanta, where I've lived for the last 17 years. And a couple of years after that relocation, I became chief compliance officer for a Belgian pharma company. So all in all, a 20-year corporate career. And at the end of 2016 is when I asked myself the question, if not now, when? Trying to determine if I was going to give the real estate slash entrepreneurial path a shot. And haven't looked back since. So since basically 2017 to today, I've been focused on commercial real estate, specifically multifamily, which is the kind of area that I'm predominantly focused on. Just started pursuing that pathway from there. In terms of kind of what got me interested in real estate, that probably goes back to my pre-teens and early teens a company and my father from our home in New Jersey to our rental property in Queens, New York, just helping him with everything from wallpapering to painting to handyman jobs, sleeping in a sleeping bag with him, heading there Friday evening and coming back Sunday, but spending the weekend just working on the house in between tenants or whatever the case was, if something needed to be taken care of. So that was probably the initial interest or what got me curious about real estate. My first investment property was actually in 1999. I bought a duplex property. So I was in the law firm job at the time, New York City. I bought a duplex down in Southwest Florida, where Mm. my parents had retired from New Jersey. In 96, they retired down to Cape Coral, Florida, there in the Southwest. And so basically, I bought this duplex I set up a checking account. I put both my parents' names on it and I had the rents going into that account. And I said to my parents, look, if you need something, don't ask me, just go get it from your account. And we did that for quite a while. I ended up holding that property all the way up until 2018. Your parents were partners on that or no? No, no, not at all. That was just my way of subsidizing them in their retirement and uh, giving them access to cash to the extent that they had any needs, repairs or anything that they had a a need for. They didn't have to, they had some independence. They didn't have to come to me and say, the hot water heater is gone. We need to replace it. I would just redirect them to their account to the point where they 
stop asking me and they truly embraced it as their account. So that was just my way of playing my role, playing my position and, and helping them in, in retirement. That's very cool. So I love that you were able to see your parents or your dad specifically get involved in real estate when you were younger and that seed was planted. I have the same story. My dad used to take me to his rental properties. I never really helped him with it because I was only like six or seven years old. <laughs> but man, many years later, he died when I was young, but many years later, that bug still persisted. So I definitely encourage any syndicator or real estate investor Take your kids out there and let them see what you're doing because it does make an impact, especially if the kids like the, the parents. <laughs> Absolutely. I've taken my kids and family to see units that I've renovated so that they could kind of see, look, here's what it looked like before. Here's what it looks like after. That's really the first time that I've had an interest or, or even a thought of every corporate setting or job has a take your kids to work day. And I've done that too whether it was with Pfizer or the other UCB, the other company I was with, but there's nothing like taking them to a rental property where you have gut renovated a unit, you've enhanced amenities, and you've just done things to bring it from a before to after. And that's very tangible for them to say, oh, wow, that looks good, dad. Or why'd you do that? Or I would have did this with the counter or whatever. It's a conversation that just flows very naturally versus me taking them to the law firm or to the pharmaceutical company and, and trying to talk to them about kind of the role that I'm playing within the company. Yeah. You know, real estate, whether you're an adult or a child, they get it. They live somewhere at a very base level, they can kind of compare and contrast and kind of arrive at conclusions based upon what they're just observing. So the you said you were a lawyer and a compliance officer. Actually, before the show, you were talking about going down to Brazil, for Sao Paulo, and a couple other places. So in this experience, you in corporate America or in compliance and, and law, were your peers investing in, in any real estate whatsoever? Yeah. So my early start, and I probably did, I went to law school in New York and then was in New York for probably about 10 years. So New York real estate is among the, the most expensive real estate in the world. Yeah. I would say most of my peers, although they were high earners and many of them continue to be, they were not necessarily investing because most of them, when they thought about investing in real estate, they thought I should invest in something first where I, I want to live and lay mm -hmm. my head and then maybe something within my radius. So most people weren't thinking about, yeah, I'm gonna go invest in a property down in Florida or in some other state, just because unless you've had any exposure to that, that that's not the first thing that comes to mind. And when you're kind of growing up on Wall Street, especially at the time that I'm talking about, so this is before the dot-com bubble burst in the early 2000s, you're looking at investing in startups. So many of my peers, myself included, we invested in high-flying startups that potentially were going to be the next billion-dollar company or, yeah. or be out of business next yeah. month, one or the two. I was curious from a mindset perspective because some of the things that we talk about on the show occasionally is like, hey, nobody in my family or my circle of influence has ever bought a 10 or 15 or $25 million asset, a commercial real estate asset. A lot of times they've never even been a, a bought a million or $2 million house. Did you have to go through any breaking of your 
paradigm in order to get into syndication or was it that you just saw people? How did you get introduced to the concept of multifamily syndication and why did it seem feasible to you? The first kind of mindset shift was coming to terms with leaving the comfort zone of a 20-year corporate career where you've got a direct deposit that's hidden every two weeks and all of the accoutrements of being in that kind of safe zone, if you will. And the longer you're in it, the more complacent you're apt to become. So the first mindset shift was leave all that behind, leave the W-2 in pursuit of a real estate entrepreneurial journey with no guarantees. So that's the first hurdle. And that takes, it's not easy. I mean, I can tell you that when I left in 2017, 2018, the early timeframe following my departure, that was the first time in my adult life since probably 17 or 18 years old that I had more money leaving my household on a monthly basis than was coming into my household. So you got to wrap your head around that and you got to get comfortable with that discomfort to even think about pursuing an entrepreneurial journey because there are no guarantees. So that was the first shift. And then it was just about, I started investing passively. I probably invested in nine or 10 institutional quality deals, commercial real estate deals, primarily multifamily related deals, either existing acquisitions or ground up development. So I invested passively. I, I moved my money out of the stock market. So my legacy 401ks, I moved that into a self-directed IRA and I started deploying that into the types of deals that I aspire to do, not at that point in time, necessarily knowing how to do them, but knowing that when I get into these deals, these are the types of deals that I would want to do. So right off the bat, when you were were passively investing, you knew right from there that you wanted to eventually become an active investor doing what you were investing in passively? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, when I was investing, I was asking myself, is this a submarket or a location that I would buy an asset? Does this business plan sound feasible? So I'm thinking through all of this stuff in anticipation of I'm likely going to be doing this in 12, 18 months from now. It was a great ground or training ground, if you will, not free education because I'm investing my dollars. But nonetheless, there's as a byproduct of you making that passive investment, there's a lot of of education associated with that. So you get to see, look, how do these institutional quality sponsors put these deals together? What does the capital stack look like? What does investor relations look like and feel like if you're on the receiving end of it? So all of these things are going to inform the type of sponsor that you're going to be, whether that's 12 months, 24, whatever down the line. Cool. So I'd really love to dive into one particular thing that I'm thinking about right now, which is kind of like, what is the passive investor mindset versus the capital raiser mindset? Because you've done both. You've passively invested and someone raised capital from you. And now you are raising capital from potential passive investors or people that have already invested. What was the sales process? Do you remember what it felt like to be pitched or were you pitched or were you just educated and you just kind of self-selected? What was that process of investing your first deal? Like, did you basically sell yourself or did somebody help you convert into becoming an investor? Yeah. The early deals I invested in, several of them were on crowdfunding platforms or via crowdfunding platforms. So 
So you so, were already sold. You just had to find where to put it. Yeah. So there was obviously there's a pitch, there's an investor webinar or what have you, but it's very depersonalized because they don't know me. I'm trying to get to know them and it's very remote. So as time went on, even my passive investing would be a little bit more intimate because I had established a relationship with the sponsor or the sponsorship team. And so it wasn't as kind of impersonal as some of those earlier ones. But I'm basically looking at them and, and apply my own kind of assessment to, does this feel like a good deal? Do the numbers make sense to me? Do I get and understand and appreciate the business plan that they're telling me that they're going to execute? So it was more of that than having to be convinced about. Um, well, I had already convinced yourself. I wonder what percentage of investors are already like that, same as you. Remember, I said my first real estate investment was back in 1999. Mm -hmm. So we're talking more than 20 years later or around 20 years later, I'm already convinced about real estate. It's just yeah. a matter of shifting from the smaller scale stuff that I had been dabbling in into larger scale stuff. And for me, I wrap my head around the concept of going as big as you can from a scale standpoint. That made total sense to me. Yeah. So if you could have a, I bought a five unit when I left corporate. That was like one of the first things that I did. All of the work and the effort to find, to locate, to renovate units, to do all of the things in connection with that. If I had the wherewithal to do that for a 50 unit, that would have been my choice. And so the bigger scale is always something that you're seeking because it gets you to your destination quicker. The path is straighter and less curvy. Okay. So you're passively investing, looking at the market or from an exterior perspective, kind of scoping what you would want to do as a syndicator. And you're having these thoughts, Hey, one day I'm going to start taking down these properties. When you started looking at syndicating your first deal, tell me about the creation of your business. Did you find partners first? Did you find the deals first? What was your role? Did you have to do everything, underwrite it, find it, raise the capital for it? Or did yeah. you kind of stay in a specific lane and do just that? A lot in there. So I'll, I'll... It's a fascinating period for somebody that's moving from passive to active is that transition stage. Like when you're, you already know you want to get into it, but then how do you take down your first deal, your first couple of deals? Yeah, so key to making that transition is education. So the investing that I was doing, that was contributing to my education. But beyond that, I sought out more concrete education. So I did seek out a mentoring program. And Where did you go with? Brad Sumrock. Okay, cool. Um, I'm, a, I'm about to go to his conference, actually. So I joined that program at the end of 2018. I had been listening to podcasts, I think, as part of my due diligence, I met with Michael Blanc at the time. I think that was his first DML, his first Dealmaker Live event at the time. So I was doing my due diligence on what are the available offerings out there. And ultimately, I settled on Brad's program. That's where I found my partners. It's not just a matter of you pay a fee, you join a group, and then partners emerge. You've got to develop relationships where people get to know, like, and trust you, and, and you reciprocate that and figure out who am I compatible with. Because I tell people, these are, these are marriages. These are up five plus or minus years of marriage. Yes. And what I know from my childhood growing up in my household, I know that there's nothing that puts more stress on a marriage than financial matters. 
And these deals are all about financial matters. And so you need to have an understanding of what is this person like when they're stressed? It's not just the, the first date or the first couple of dates when everyone's on their best behavior, but what are they like when the bills come in and the money's tight? And you want to get as much of a feel of that as you can in advance of stepping down the, the aisle and into marriage when you buy one of those deals. So I tell people, fortunately, I wasn't an overnight success. So I put my first LOI in, in April of 2019. I remember it was a 92 unit here in Atlanta. I was a runner up. And so for me, I didn't know any better. I was like, oh, we almost got that one. We were runners up. The broker's telling me we were the runners up. We lost out to someone who paid 300K more than we were willing to. I didn't get that. I'll get one next month or, or thereafter. So fast forward to summer of 21 was when I actually landed my first deal. Obviously, COVID was in the mix for some portion of this time, and that was disrupting the market and deal flow and all of that. But nonetheless, it took me the better part of two years between submitting my first LOI and landing my first deal. Was that um, discouraging? Was that frustrating? Yeah. That was I, part of the process. Yeah, it's definitely. It's A definitely, lot of people did, like me, did. So I see people like that are working on the first deal right as I'm coming up. I'm thinking specifically of Zach Kapistar. I remember when he was doing his first or second deal, he was a Brad Summer student too. Yeah. And like where he's gone compared to where I've gone in that same time frame, I'm just like, how come I'm not as big as him? I think that's an unfair comparison, of course. It's very but, unfair. And, but, and congratulations to Zach and team because they're in the billions now. Yeah, they're, so. they're killing it. So but, but for you, I'm just curious because I don't know that everybody has the patience. A lot of people that get into syndication, they know that it's not a get rich quick thing, but they want to go as fast as some of their peers that are doing it with them or alongside them. Yeah. So I'm a big believer that when you're running a marathon, the worst thing that you could do is try and keep pace with someone else that you haven't trained with. <laughs> oh, that's so brilliant. You got to know what's the pace that I should be running this marathon at. And if you take off out the gate and you're running a six minute mile when you trained at a 7.30 or an eight minute mile, that's disaster. You're gonna blow up and you're not even gonna finish it most likely. So you need to run the pace and just know that everyone's place in the journey and the race is a different. Everyone came to the race with different training, different preparation, different diet, different whatever. And so you can't be looking, and I learned this in my household, my father would always say, don't be looking at what so-and-so is doing. You don't know what they did to get that. You don't know what they're prepared to do. To Just focus on you and set your target, set your goal, and go after it. So for me, yes, it was frustrating, but I never lost faith that it was going to happen for me. Again, going back to mindset, I had the mindset of I'm going to be a multifamily syndicator. The only question is when. Michael Blanc talks about the law of the first deal. I lived that experience because I was knocking on the door for two years saying, hey, what about me? I'm out here. Let me in. And then all of a sudden, I got that first deal, summer of 21, 244 units, $30 million deal. The same week that we closed that, I got a call from Cushman saying, hey, you've been awarded this 200 unit, $40 million deal. So after two years of me saying, you know, doing the Rodney Dangerfield, what about me? All of a sudden, things are starting to kick in and take off and I'm gaining momentum. So yes, it can be frustrating because you're not seeing tangible results, but you're doing a lot of work. And 
and you're touring properties, you're underwriting a ton of deals, you're meeting with brokers, you're doing all of this stuff. But unlike corporate where that direct deposit is going to hit regardless of what's going on for the most part, you don't have that same payoff in our world where it's until you get take down that deal, that's really the most tangible thing and the outgrowth of all of the efforts that you've been putting in over whatever period of time. So yeah, it can be frustrating, but you've just got to know that failure is not an option. And I'm that kind of person. Failure is not an option. And so some may say I'm stubborn, but I think there's, there's a good side to being stubborn yeah. when it comes to pursuing your goals, especially in this space. Yeah. Or just commitment. I guess you can call that stubbornness, but when you're really committed, like no matter what challenges, like I think a lot of students go through this college students, they're like, Hey, I'm going to graduate. I don't care how many years it takes me. I'm going to go and get my degree. And when you have that same level of commitment to getting your first deal done or to becoming a successful syndicator or raising XYZ number of capital or acquiring so many units and you just never, 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 ever give up. And regardless of what stuff gets thrown at you along the way, there's something to be said about when you are committed to do something, the universe will eventually give it to you on God's timing. So that's yeah. really fantastic. I'm sorry to have interrupted you. We were talking, this is so good content. I wanted to get back to the the first couple of deals that you did. And yeah. I obviously love talking about mindset. So I got really excited about that. But so you mentioned you got awarded two deals. Were you able to take them both down? Yeah, we did. And part of your question was kind of what was my role and, yeah, and, and your partnership. partners and building a team. So I did find partners that ultimately we went on to close these deals. So that was a big benefit of being a part of a mentoring program. And that's kind of one tangible thing that I was looking for. So the education is one piece, but I'll say that no one has a, a monopoly on the education or the blueprint of what it takes to take down one of these deals. Everyone can put their little spin on it, but the core substance of the what these are the steps, these are the steps. No one owns that. And so for me, I was really looking for a place where I could find partners and a place where I could find prospective investors who could get to know, like, and trust me. And hopefully, if I brought them a good deal, be interested enough, curious enough to consider investing in it. So that was important to me. And I found those things too. The way I positioned myself to answer your question about what was my role and kind of what did I do in the process of these deals. So for me, I live in Atlanta. Atlanta is one of the top multifamily markets and yep. has been for more than a decade. And so be. for me, I said, look, I'm not going to go to Dallas to compete for deals. I'm not going to Phoenix to compete for deals. I've got a good backyard. I'm going to play in my backyard. I'm going to become an expert in my backyard. I'm going to develop relationships here. I'm going to underwrite deals. I'm going to tour deals. I'm going to make connections with brokers and property management companies, all of the things that you need to do. And what I did is just that. And then I put the deals in front of my partners with a bow on it and said, here's why we should offer. And here's what we should offer. Got their feedback. And we just ran at these deals. And so the understanding was that my competitive advantage or positioning was Clive's got boots on the ground in a market that we don't necessarily have access to, or we don't have any experience in, or we don't have any, none of our portfolio is in that market. And so I basically made myself valuable to a team that already had experience, but not in my market. Mm -hmm. 
Phenomenal. Okay, we had been chatting a little bit about the passive investor mindset versus the capital raiser mindset. Now that you are raising capital, how are you approaching? Because I know that you can raise some within the Brad Sumrock, and then a lot of times people want to continue to get people from outside. What have you been doing on the capital raising side to approach, build your database on the marketing side, social media side, or attracting limited partners and building your database? All things come back to networking. That's real-time networking in person. And when we get done with this, I'm heading off to a networking session uh, meetup here in Atlanta. All things are networking. So there's in-person, real-time, touch the hand or palm networking. And then there's what can you do by leveraging social media. So anyone who tells me, hey, Clive, I see the success that you've had. I want to do what you're doing a year from now. I talk to them about, hey, what are you doing in terms of branding or branding yourself via social media? Because you can have many Zoom kind of one-to-ones or pick up the phone, but you're going to be limited in the number of people that you can touch. When you get into social media and you're strategic about it, you can touch hundreds and thousands of people. And it's all about, do people know you, like you, and trust you? And a lot of that legwork that you need to be able to answer yes for each of those three things, a lot of that legwork and effort can be done by leveraging social media effectively. And so I am very consistent in making sure that my presence is out there associated with multifamily. And so I do that, but I also do, I attend as many conferences as I can and meet new people as well as meet people for the first time that I've been knowing for years virtually, but are just now getting around to meeting them in person. So local meetups, meetups that require travel or conferences, all of those things are important in the capital raising thing. Because again, it comes down to no one's going to wire you $100,000 if they barely know you, not sure if they like you, and don't know whether you're trustworthy. (laughs) If If that's the scenario, you're not going to be doing very well as a capital raiser. So you got to turn that in your favor. Good stuff. All right, cool, man. Let's talk a little bit before we jump into the lightning round. I'd love to hear about your business model. Where are you currently investing? Tell us a little bit about your track record and what you want to be doing in, let's say, the next 10 years. Do you want to continue to stay in, in Atlanta or you got your eyes on some other markets too? So in terms of my active investments, so any deal that I am kind of spearhead in, For now, I'm focused on the Atlanta Metro. I do invest passively and have invested passively in other markets like Houston and Austin and and some other strong markets. But if it's a deal that I'm leading, I'm focused on Atlanta Metro. So the other piece of my business, which is somewhat of a new part of my business, is that I've gotten into development. And so I'm currently developing a 90-acre parcel or 90-acre community with one other partner. Like a built to rent subdivision or something like that? No. So it's actually, it's going to be about 115 homes. About 85 of them will be single family homes for sale. And then we'll have another, the balance of that will be a mix of townhomes and condos. And then about 30,000 square feet of commercial retail space. And so we're developing this community southwest of the Atlanta airport, about 30 minutes in a rural setting. And we're adjacent to Serenby, Georgia, which has built itself since 2005 as a wellness community. Our community is going to be differentiated in that it's a culinary-centric community. And 
it's a pretty innovative community that we're going to help bring out out of the ground. That deal is not the 506B deal, right? It is not. No, okay. that, that is a 506C, and <laughs> I can freely talk about that one. Right. Well, I always yeah. have to ask. Oh, that's fantastic. What made you want to get into development? Because you were doing multifamily. I know that you've done a bunch of multifamily value add, I think BNC class in Atlanta. Yep. And now this development, what made you want to do development? Because a lot of people, I'm a build to rent subdivision developer, and a lot of people are just, they see the vision, they understand that it's here to stay, the trend, the asset class, but they're like, hey, I understand multifamily and my partners, they all know multifamily. So I don't know where to begin with development. There's like zoning and ordinances and bureaucracy and red tape and dealing with the city and government and water laws and land laws and conservative this, all kinds of stuff. And it's just too overwhelming for them. I always tell them, hey, just go partner with somebody that's already done it. But what's been your experience getting into development? Yeah, so for me, development was always a natural extension of being in the multifamily owner operator, kind of go acquire something, fix it up and kind of run it. Development just was just a natural extension. So if you had asked me two or three years ago, well, what will you be doing in three to five years? I'd probably say at some point I'm going to get into development. Awesome. I didn't necessarily know what that looked like or have a strategic plan of how I get there. And the project that I mentioned to you, that kind of landed in my lap. And so because I maybe I put out into the universe that I was going to get into development is the reason that I connected with the, my now partner and that, that opportunity kind of came to me. But development, like I said, natural extension, and it's an opportunity to, there's greater risk associated with development, no doubt about it, but there also should be a corresponding or commensurate greater reward with that development. But I also think it's a good way to diversify. So if you're in the multifamily uh, value add acquisition space, well, you know that the, this quarter and, and the last half of 2022 has been a slow period in terms of inventory and deal flow. Mm -hmm. And so if you just have a blinders on that say, I'm only going to do multifamily acquisitions of a particular type, that could dry up. <laughs> and we've seen that firsthand. Yes. So just from a diversification standpoint, I think it's a good idea to look under the umbrella of commercial real estate and say, are there other places that I can play and learn and grow that are going to help diversify my overall portfolio so that I'm not overly reliant on any one thing. And so I think development is just, it gives you that opportunity to do that. And development, like the one that I mentioned to you, that's going to be a four-year development. It will be four years before the last nail is hammered in connection with that project. And so that's not kind of a, we're going to go flip something, buy something, put some lipstick on it and, and then in 18 months, turn around and sell it. It's a long-term commitment. It's a different business model. Very cool. That's fantastic. All right, man, let's jump into the lightning round. How about we start with this? What's the best vacation you've ever taken? Best vacation I've ever taken is I was actually living in Hong Kong and I spent a weekend in four day weekend in Phuket, Thailand, had the best weekend, best vacation that I've had private villa, sunken tubs, private pool. We just had a phenomenal time. Great people, love Thai people, just love the culture. It was just a great time. How cool. Favorite book of any kind? Nothing to do with real estate. It's probably 
I Know Why a Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. It's the first book I recall reading cover to cover. I'll have to check that out. I'm a big fan of Maya Angelou. Very yeah. How much of your success do you attribute to mindset? 70%. What's the other 30%? 30% of it is goes back to that stubborn comment I made earlier. So the commitment piece. You retitled it commitment. So I'll, t I'll go with that. <laughs> I love it. How long do you want to live? I want to live as long as I can have a, a great quality of life and impact other people's lives in a favorable way. And what number do you think that you can do that to? Well, my father will be turning 98 in September, and he's in still he still drives for most days. He still uh, is fairly independent. For me, his uh, grandmother lived to 103, so I'm uh, hey, let's go for 100. Rock and roll, I love it. Do you, you have any hacks for breaking through limiting beliefs? You gotta immerse yourself, surround yourself with people who are operating on a higher level. Just the mere presence in those types of settings will encourage you to shed whatever negative beliefs that you have that are holding you back. Heck yeah, I love that answer. Best way to raise capital from your perspective? Be authentic. You mentioned in the show, put it out to the universe. Tell me about your beliefs in the power of affirmations or what is that all about? Yeah, for me, it's, it's about if you cannot conceive yourself doing it, you will never do it. And so part of conceiving that it's possible for you is to speak about you doing the thing. And so my youngest son, he does competitive gymnastics. And so his coach talks to him and talks to us about the importance of visualizing the routine. So going through that routine from start to finish, seeing yourself complete whatever that apparatus is or that event is, and that is going to bleed over into you doing it in real life. And I think the same is applicable for real estate investing, See, envisioning yourself as a syndicator. Again, if you can't conceive it, if you can't say it out loud without cracking up or being embarrassed, you're probably gonna have a hard time achieving that objective. In order to achieve something, you must first expect it of yourself. Check yourself, talk, and your thoughts, guys. So important in what we do. What do you love best about playing and watching soccer? Well, it's the number one sport in the world, so everyone else calls it football other than the U.S., but for me, I played it most of my life well into adulthood. I haven't been as active in it over the last few years, I went to an Atlanta United game this past weekend and to see what you have, I don't know, we probably had 40,000 people who are moving and cheering in unison. Like that doesn't happen at many other sports, but in, in soccer or football, that is a week in, week out reality. And there's a culture that goes with it. You just can't replicate. That's fantastic. Couple more questions. Have you ever experienced a miracle or ever had a near-death experience? I've not had a near-death experience that I recall. The closest thing to a miracle is, is childbirth for me. That's definitely a miracle. Or for my wife, I should say, and me getting to experience it. The birth of a child, just consider the fact that we're floating around through mostly empty space on a blue bubble experiencing consciousness and then get to see somebody else come into existence. That is so miraculous, guys, so I love that. All right, last question brought to you by Shanna Amigo, one of our great listeners. She would like to know what impact would you like to leave in the world? For me, I come from an each one, teach one kind of background. And so I want to impact as many people in terms of their ability to create generational wealth. 
And for me, when I talk about generational wealth, I'm talking not about what I leave for my children, but what I leave for my not yet conceived grandchildren. And so I want to do that for myself, create generational wealth. I'm the first to go to college, first to go to law school. I'm the first to do a lot in my family, but I want to do that for other families. To the extent I can be part of the blueprint to other families creating generational wealth, especially families that don't come from a rich situation, to the extent that I can contribute to that, that's real impact for me. Fire. <laughs> that was fantastic. Love the lightning round. All right. Shout out to the Capital Racer Nation. Thanks for tuning in. Please leave us a five-star written review and shout out to my company, Legacy Acquisition, and our sponsors of the show, Syndication Pro and PitchDex.com. We have a powerful new capital raising coaching program in conjunction with the Family Office Club. Find out more at CapitalRaiserShow.com. All right, cool. Clive, tell us, how does the audience get a hold of you, my friend? I'm active on social media. I'm active on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. But the best way to get a hold of me is to go directly to my website, which is parkroyalcapital.com. You go there, you can sign up for my newsletter. You can book a call with me if you want to chop it up and talk real estate investing. I mean, you can also see some other things that I'm up to, activities uh, I'm up to. Awesome. Any last words of wisdom for the aspiring capital raiser or syndicator as they scale on their journey? I would say that everyone with whom you've had a relationship, whether that goes back to undergrad, your first job, your second job, every one of those people, every one of those individuals is a prospective investor. Until you get down the capital raising path, you don't necessarily appreciate that. But when you start putting out stuff into the world via social media and what have you, you will have people from undergrad, from high school, from your first job who are seeing and observing what you're doing. And each one of those individuals is a prospective investor in your deal. So you may not think that you have a broad network, but most of us have a very broad network. We just haven't nurtured it or tapped into it yet. Clive, you're really cool doing that. I really appreciate your time here today. Thanks for joining us on the show, man. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate right. it. The Capital Razor Show.